0: So I think maybe that might be a point to discuss in the discussion um, at the end of the day. It seems to interest quite a lot of people. So now we move on to the last uh, presentation uh, by uh, Dr. Axel Klein and uh, Lucy Lucy Williams, uh, both from the University of Kent, Uh, and it's going to be on uh, basically how immigration detainees gone after having been detained.
1: so what we're going to do is I'm going to start off and um, run you through. I'm going to stand over here you something handy to lean on. Um, we're just at the beginning of, of the research process, and unfortunately, we don't yet have the, the rich qualitative data that Melanie's got. But we are hoping to get um, something, something towards that. So we're right at the beginning of the process. Uh, so what's where this came from is work with a very small charity in Kent that works in Dover Immigration Removal Centre, which is focused particularly on getting people released, on getting people out of detention, chiefly through finding some, some way in their legal case, finding them a solicitor if they haven't got one, and particularly in finding bail sureties to get people released. So in this, in this work, and I'm sure those of you who know about what happens after release, Getting out of the doors of detention is, is only the, is just the beginning of the next stage. So we then wanted to get some money to do some larger research on what happens post-release. And this is an, a, a pilot project to, to support our claim for cash, basically. We are very, uh, very practical about that. So... That's where we that's where we started from, and our main objectives really are to to learn from the detainee ex-detainees themselves, or as we've called them, deten- detention veterans or detention survivors, uh, to find out how they feel about being released. Because certainly, initial interviews show that there's there's a considerable amount of ab- ambivalence about how released you are when you leave the detention centre, given the in, but increasingly tight reporting restrictions, tagging so on and so forth, and that you still live within a lot of restrictions, no ability to work, reliance in the UK on Section 4, um, funding on vouchers, no choice accommodation, and, and so much other, other, so many other restrictions. So the project then is to, is to yet again to try to maintain a focus on the migrant themselves and to deflect attention in a way from the, the, the structures and to look at the people themselves. Um, we want to look really about you know what kind of citizenship is, is available for, for those people once they leave <coughs> detention. Sort of where do they fit within the state? Because we're you know, our, our idea being that they have all the responsibilities of, of a citizen, but with absolutely none of the benefits of it. So a further interesting but is, is actually, as actually may explain, has done a lot of work in, in prisons in which and other secure institutions where the moment of release, that actual leaving, leaving the institution, is heavily focused on, as it's recognised as a, as a moment of stress, of a, a moment of being on the cusp of something new where, where, where people are at risk themselves and where others are going to be at risk in the community. So why doesn't this happen in immigration detention? And there is no focus in any immigration detention centre on the, on the moment of release. People do literally just get shoved out of the door sometimes. I mean, it's usually a big fight, but that does also happen. Um, so the, the inspector of, prisoners, of prisons, in their reports, because it's one of the healthy establishment criteria, there is always a section on preparation for release. But when you're looking at immigration, immigration detention, it generally reflects have people been allowed to phone their friends? Have they been able to have visits? It doesn't actually look at anything more practical on on how can we facilitate somebody's integration into the community. So why might that be? Well, (laughs) let us start at the beginning. I think the main thing is because release is just not meant to be happening. Never mind that these are removal centres, and removal is a form of release. But we're not interested in that. That is not seen as being released. That's just going back to where you should have been all along. So release is not, is not actually there. Release is also pretty difficult to anticipate. I mean, when are you, how are you going to prepare somebody for something that probably will never happen? There, is, there are practical issues. How would you actually conceive of a programme to support people post-release? It happens very slowly. But also there's another way of thinking it that I've already indicated, that release actually doesn't happen. You're just moving as somebody, as, as a detainee told us recently, you're moving from one pocket to another. Things get better, but you're still under the control of, of the system. This lack of recognition, if you like, about um, about release and it, and its place in relation to detention centres, is also reflected in the in the statistics. Now, the UK, as you, I'm sure you all know, is very good at producing all kinds of data. There's everything you could all. There's all the data there, except for the data you actually want. And, and in this case, we want to know how many people are released from the detention state. Now, there's data there on how many people are removed and on how many people leave detention. So the difference between those figures, presumably, is the number of people who are released. But given that those... Detention numbers also include all the fast-track people who have not been. Their release is much less controversial than the release of people who are at the end of the process and who are facing removal. So we don't know how many people actually are released, um, having having got to the end of the end of their uh, asylum or other immigration processes. Those data figures are just not there. But based on the difference between the people who who left detention and the people were removed, there's an awful lot of them, and on that raw data it's 42% of everybody leaving detention is released, i.e. is not removed. I mean they may be removed at a a later date. And that also tallies very closely to the numbers which we can find, the numbers of people receiving Section 4 support, which is 10,000 people in 2009 received Section 4 report, which gives some indication of uh, that they may have been released after having been detained for quite a long time. But that those figures are very obscure, if you like. They're obscured within within the other numbers. Um, so if we look a little bit about how um, how people leave leave detention, there are many different ways. Obviously it can be through bail through chief immigration officers bail or just sort of normal bail, temporary release, temporary admission due, this was reviewed. But once people leave, leave detention they have very few rights, they, they're not going to be allowed to work, they're not going to gain any permanent status in the foreseeable future. Well, Some people may have left because they have achieved permanent status but it's certainly not um, an expected outcome of, of being released. Uh, the data we have collected, well there's, we've done a few interviews with deta- people who are currently detained who have been released in the past and who have found being on the outside a very difficult um, difficult circumstances. And then I think from work within the, the charity on people who have been released, uh, it's extraordinarily difficult for people who have been in detention for a long time to cope on the outside. They have no... For a, as most of you will probably know, they've got no-choice accommodation. They're, in, they're accommodated wherever wherever they're placed by... By the Section 4 accommodation or, or whatever, they may be separated effectively from any social networks they have in the country. They're not, they're not eligible for work, or oftentimes they're not eligible for education either. So, you know, we, we, we hear of, of cases of people who are who are living in, in shared accommodation with people they're extremely afraid of, who you know, who have no support other than possibly their surety who may live a long way away from them or their prison visitor. And I think certainly it's a very, people become very vulnerable while they're, while they're, they're in that, that situation. Um, right, okay, so we've talked about the, the problems of that and then also, of course, these people are very vulnerable to, to committing um, criminal offences as that, what else are they supposed to do to get by? And, and that that so this the point of criminalisation, which Melanie's talked about already quite a lot is you know continues certainly once po- post release um, sorry I'm losing myself in my notes here a bit <laughs> which is a common problem so our our research then we are we, we did struggle quite quite hard to get it through the um, the the ethics committee, and certainly a lot of the ethics to, to relate to Menela's issue earlier. That a lot of the problems with with the ethics was how are we going to find these people? And I think that's actually quite a good point because the people that that we have a, we are able to establish contact with are people who have been successful, if you like, in that they have a, a surety and that they have some some support. They presume they often have solicitors that we're in touch with. So. The actual, we are quite likely to get quite a skewed, a skewed sample of people who have been relatively successful post-release. But again, success, is something that, that Axel may well pick up on, success is an entirely relative term. That, that is success managing to keep body and soul together? Is success managing to establish a, a fresh claim for asylum, managing to, to reconnect with communities? Or is success actually getting by and being able to establish a criminal lifestyle that works quite well thank you very much There is, there are issues there uh, about that but I think we expect to find we expect to find evidence of people living on the outside so who are outside outside the sort of the, the pale of, of citizenship who, who some of whom may manage to, to survive quite well like that in, um, in the nether regions of society who are in a way freed from their Civic responsibilities because of their being criminalised and completely on the outside. So long as they don't get picked picked back up again. So um, yeah, I think there are also issues about doing this kind of research. Just before I hand over to Axel, there are big problems that we all face working in in this field. Not only with the, sort of the lack of data and the lack of. Something we've talked about already today is the lack of record that's generated by um, by asylum cases, and that sort of bail hearings, for example, are, never, are recorded extremely poorly. So it's very difficult to find out the sort of history of what actually happens to people as they move through the system. Um, but what what do we there's also problems with what we're trying to do with this information, how much we're trying to to record. Record what happens and how much we're trying to actually change the system, and I think that's um, that's another issue that researchers need to to keep on track. Is why are we asking these questions? What are we what are we hoping to 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 find out from it? Would you like to make some points from there, Axel? Thanks
0: very much, Lucy. Yeah. Thanks very much for putting together such a nice panel that has taken us from the detention centres and some very thick descriptions of experiences within to what happens afterwards and. To the lack of <laughs> in. So I'm fairly new to the immigration field, uh, I've done a lot of work around uh, drug control and drug issues, but uh, part of the part is then looking at ways in which categories of people are brought under control of the state and deprived of rights and liberties in a calibrated fresh fashion, and how they're being processed and managed by different state agencies, which are always comprised of alliances between policymakers and state employed agents and, and technical experts in science and I wanted to use this Foucauldian notion of the once an infrastructure of control is put into place then it will be maintained even though the profile of the actual people controlled within will change. Um, so immigrants are, are a category that, that are now being held in these centers they're being held in process. And I thought we, um, we could use their story and the information we're getting from them to interrogate the methods that are employed and uh, and ask if this um, this is a solution to the actual underlying problem. And what is the underlying problem? And I think going back to basics, what I think we're trying to address as a society by holding and deporting immigrants is to the fear of crime, reduce crime, and the fear of uh, unemployment. That these are the particular things that immigrants are threats to. And what arises is a very peculiar situation where the liberty people are being deprived of their liberty, um, for an administrative purpose. And I find it as a non-lawyer very difficult to get my head around it, because what I understand from my work in prisons is that prison is a place um, for punishment, uh, of punishment. People are taken to be punished to prisons. It's not a place for punishment to make to beat people or deprive them of uh, and put them on, on uh, bread and water. They're being deprived of the liberty as punishment. And yet we have this main means we're using as punishment, and we're using it for immigrants. And I find that odd. Um, uh, they're being held there ostensibly to prevent them from absconding um, while their deportation is being arranged. And yet over half the people are being released back into the community. And that makes me ask sort of two, two questions. Either the uh, assessment made by the agency that detained them was done improperly, um, and... and If it's done improperly, why do we allow a government agency to have such a shoddy work process, whereby half the people that they detain are then released? Um, Why is that not being more rigorously interrogated? And then the next thing that happens, they're being released into the community without any preparation. We know that the National Office of of Offender Management Service, uh, who looks after prisons, they invest very heavily in um, preparing people for the release into the community, because the idea of prison is after all rehabilitation. And this rehabilitation is designed as a crime reduction strategy because we realize that they are likely to reoffend. So if we do not do this with immigration detainees, then either we identify these as a category of people who are low-risk criminogenic factor, if they're, if they're not crime generators. So again, we ask if they're not crime generators, why do we arrest them? Or the UKBA is putting the public at risk by releasing these people without preparation. Um, And these risks are exacerbated by the conditions of release, because people are excluded from the means of earning legitimate uh, uh, livelihood. Um, And these uh, detention veterans, or debt vets, as I like to call them, uh, are therefore become the charge of civil society. And this is what we find, that the state uh, takes the responsibility for the welfare of these people and unrolls it onto civil society, in both sense of being looked after by charitable organizations or by exposure to the risk of crime. So the interventions by the public sector and it's quite interesting. You remove people from the community, their existing situations, often where they're gaining a livelihood and are members of families, severing their, their relations with. And then when they're released, they're livelihood ch- chances, their skill base, and their social ties have been are, are worse than they were before. So there's been a negative knock-on effect through that intervention for the individuals, for their families, for their former employers and partners, and so on. Um, so there are real disadvantages. But against that, to, uh, for the point of analysis, we have to see where do the advantages of, of maintaining the systems, where do they accrue? And to me, they accrue in two places. One is for policymakers. Um, and the other is the people who operationalise who run these systems themselves. Um, there's, what, 28,000 people in, uh, in, in detention, and I imagine there must be about 10 to 15,000 people whose livelihood will depend on managing uh, these. And um, for policymakers, the idea of something that, is, that looks concrete and is punitive and appealing gives this sort of sense of activism, that something is being done about it. Um, and the idea of the operationalization through these camps and these pseudo-processes again gives this idea that there is a function, it gives the appearance of a functioning system. Um, so the research is sort of looking at this integration story to, to, to gather evidence um, uh, how this works and that the system is not, uh, is not functioning and that we have this roll-on effect to, uh, to civil society. I'm wrapping it up. Um, and I thought from there on we can perhaps move to looking at the underlying rationale. The underlying rationale of detaining immigrations is not working because, the, first of all, these people are not stealing work um, because they're often in work situations that are what are the 3Ds, disgusting, degrading and poorly paid or whatever. Um, these the, the natives are not competing for these jobs. Um, and the second assumption is that they're crime generators. And again, I think we find that they are not crime generators. The criminalization is an artificial, it's an artifact, it's a construal by, uh, by de- defining certain forms of behavior as criminal.